Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. If you are visiting Christ Church, my name is Mark. I have the privilege of being one of the ministers here at the church, and we're glad you're with us. We are in this entire series looking at the Gospels. We're taking Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we're synchronizing them together in a chronological way, trying to tell the story the best we can estimate it happened in order, and taking those stories together and what we learn about Jesus. We're particularly this summer in the section known as the Sermon on the Mountain, where Jesus proclaimed his campaign speech, if you will, about what he was trying to accomplish in this new kingdom. And the thing that we want you to understand is what we're learning from the Sermon on the Mount is that the value of all persons is a core value of kingdom people. That the value of all persons, good, bad, or indifferent, is a core value of Jesus and all people who are going to be a part of his kingdom. What we've realized is that the Beatitudes, instead of being these exclusive requirements to be saved, are actually an inclusive invitation to be a part of the kingdom. You don't have to do those seven things for Jesus to love you. It shows that Jesus loves even those people too. And that's the invitation we have. We've learned that by valuing all people, a kingdom person will value others too much to show disdain and contempt for them. That a kingdom person will Treat, will not treat others as sexual objects for their own gratification, but instead see the soul and the value of intimacy and relationship with that person. That a person who will value others way too much to disregard a covenant they've established and throw it away as meaningless. Or that we value people too much not to speak the truth in love and won't use lies and won't use deception to gain advantage. So let me give you a caveat for today been thinking about this for about three weeks now. Today's text will be the toughest teaching so far in the 37 weeks of this series. And for several reasons. So I'm going to tell you right now, it will challenge you in a very personal way. I'm pretty much assuming it will upset many of us. And it will cause you to ask the question, really? Really what he expects us to do? It will challenge the lordship of Jesus in every one of our hearts. Do I have your attention? Have I got you going, oh, this is interesting. This is a little bit different. Yeah, this one's going to be harder because we're American. And what Jesus talks about strikes at the core of what many of us believe it means to be an American and what freedom means and what privilege means and what rights mean. So I'm just going to warn you up front. You're not going to like today's teaching. In fact, I suggest several times during the message, you're going to think to yourself, have you lost your mind? And I'm going to say... It'll seem that way if you've lost your heart. Because Jesus is calling us to live with a renewed heart in his kingdom that trusts beyond conventional wisdom and common sense. And this is a tough teaching. As Americans, we like to celebrate our individual rights. It says right in the Declaration of Independence, we have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we harumph that. Yes, we do. And, and I'll be honest with you, I am grateful to live in a country where I'm granted those rights. We talk about civil rights, women's rights, children's rights, workers' rights, victims' rights, defendants' rights, gay rights, prisoners' rights. Those were just, when I put in what rights do we have, those popped up on Google. When anyone threatens our rights, we will fight like a banshee. 
I have my rights, you can't take my rights, and if you try to take my rights, I'll prove to you who's right. It's just the way we're wired. Retaliation has been a way of human beings since the very beginning. Cain felt a perceived injustice, so he enacted his rights in a strange way. And instead of striking out at the one who he perceived was unjust to him, he struck the one who received the benefit of it, and he killed his brother Abel. But I want to remind you that if we don't keep the sequential order of what Jesus is teaching about this new kingdom, we can pluck certain passages out and say to ourselves these words, well, that doesn't apply today. There's no way he really expects me to do that. Look at verse 17 with me. Jesus says, don't suppose that I came to do away with the law and the prophets. He said, the way of God has always been right. And and what I'm teaching you is founded on the way of God. I did not come to do away with them, but to give them their full meaning. Some of your translations say to fulfill them. I came to show you what God meant instead of what we've done with it. And verse 20 is the fulcrum verse. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness stops being outward and starts becoming inward, you've lost your mind. To think that you can do something on behalf of God with no feeling for God and no connection with God. He said, think of the most religious people you know, the most accomplished people, the ones that check all the boxes of how what a wonderful life they live, but inside their empty tombs, Jesus would say. Unless our righteousness surpasses the outward expression without the inward heart, the question is, have you lost your mind? Yes, I have because I lost my heart. And by regaining my heart, I understand what it is to be in God's kingdom. This is Jesus' kingdom invitation to do things that are so ridiculously out of sorts that really that, that make you respond with, really? He expects me to do that? That's why today's teaching is going to be the toughest because it's, it's a heart issue and only a heart issue. And for some of us, our hearts have been damaged by others. And Jesus is going to offer us a tonic that doesn't make any sense to what hurt us. So let's begin when Jesus will say something like, you have heard it. What does God desire? Well, Jesus is going to show us that God desires justice, not revenge. He desires justice and not revenge. And you can have one without the other. In verse 38, Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And we totally get that. This is something that it's ingrained in all of us, especially in our culture in America. And there's nothing wrong with our culture except for our misuse of these rights we have. That one of the oldest laws, the code of law that they found was the code of Hammurabi, which was 2,200 years before Jesus showed up. This law existed. And in the law, it was found an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's also found in the book of Genesis, the book of Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Leviticus. It's sprinkled throughout the entire Old Testament law. It was God's intention that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth stood, but not the way it's enacted normally in humanity. You see, God was about justice, not revenge. In, in the earlier days, in the more primitive days, vengeance was a right that was assumed and it was overreaching. If one man from a tribe har- uh, harmed another man from a tribe, the entire tribe would attack the entire tribe. And it went from what to wow in a second. And God said, no, this is what I want it to be. I want an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth to limit vengeance, not give you permission to do it. 
not turn you loose and say they hurt you, now go hurt them. But to say there's a limit to what can be done when something's been wronged. In Exodus chapter 21, verse 22, here's just one example. If men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so she has a miscarriage, yet there is no further injury, she shall, he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him, and he shall pay as the judge decides. Notice that there is a judicial proceeding. There is a protection of both parties. So if someone's been harmed, the person who harmed them should do the right thing. And the right thing will be guaranteed by a third party, a judge, who will make sure that it's not overreaching and it's not overpunishment, but it's sufficient. Make sense? Shake your head if that makes sense to you. The Old Testament principle wasn't, you got a right to get even. The Old Testament principle is, justice must happen. And there's a difference. Deuteronomy 25 Verse one and two, if there is a dispute between men and they go to court and the judge decides their case and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, then it shall be as if the wicked man deserves to be beaten. The judge shall then make him lie down and be beaten in his presence with the number of stripes according to his guilt. Do you see what's the protection there? We like to read it. Well, the guy deserves it. Yeah, but he deserves a certain punishment and that punishment needs to be meted out under the jurisdiction of someone who's protecting that it's fair and reasonable justice not revenge. Now we all know the difference between revenge and justice, right? See, the Lord expects that the wicked be condemned and the righteous be justified. Proverbs seventeen fifteen: He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. God's not pleased with either. He's not pleased when people get away with things. Justice requires that there be punishment. Leviticus 19.18, you shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the Old Testament standard that Jesus is addressing has to do with right justice, not revenge. Yet it had become something where revenge was permitted and we have our rights, right? And that's the wrong question to be asking. So what does Jesus want from us when we're wronged? This is where Jesus says, you've heard it said, but in verse 39, he says, but I say to you, do not resist him who is evil and whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. Hmm. That's kind of funny, isn't it? He must not really mean that. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. And whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Really? Does he really mean this? I mean, I get all the other parts. If I see a beautiful woman and I'm attracted to her, I divert my eyes because it's not right for me to treat her as a sexual being. If I get angry at someone, it's not right for me to demean them and disavow their value and not treat them made in the image of God. I understand all of this, but this one, come on. Someone comes up and pops me in the face. I'm supposed to turn around and say, oh, you missed a side. Really? Have you lost your mind? Yeah, because we've lost our hearts. What Jesus has done here is he's taken four illustrations that are meant to provoke you. They're meant to get in your personal space and make you uncomfortable. I've shared this story before, but I think I've been here long enough that I'm about out of them. And this is what I'll always remember about this text. When our boys were little, and I loved to just take those little gummy humans at about a year of age and play with them, and I was holding Alex, and he was really cute, and he would stand in my hand. I would just hold his feet, and 
he would wobble and then he'd jump on my, and I love those moments hanging out with him. And this happened with both of my boys and it was to teach me a lesson, but it showed my nature. I'd have both of those boys and I'd be holding them and look away. And one time, Alex's head, he just lost control. He was a bobblehead. He just lost control. And he busted me in the mouth with his forehead. And it jammed my lip down on my tooth where it cut my lip. I would love to tell you that I held my son and went, oh, buddy, you're just not very strong. You didn't mean any harm. No, what I wanted to do, if Heather hadn't been in the room, was press his lips so hard down on his gums that he squealed. And I went, ha, how do you like it? Where does that come from? I love this kid. And the moment he hurt me, my first reaction wasn't to bless him. My first reaction was, now how do you like it? Am I the only one? I know some of you go, I never hurt my child. You're better than me. But when someone else hurts you, cut you off in traffic, have 14 items in the 12 and under line at Walmart, (laughs) and you feel justified running a cart right in the back of their hamstrings and watch them crumble (laughs) and say, learn to count, right? This is what we do. Now, there you are. Yeah, judge me earlier, but I got you. Absolutely got you. It is not in American culture for us to allow someone to disadvantage us and not do something about it. In fact, we think we have to. And Jesus is awakening in us a heart problem that we believe that revenge is our right, that I have the right to get revenge because they hurt me. And Jesus said, no, I would prefer that you didn't try to be right, but instead you chose to be righteous. And this is where none of us are going to go. Have you lost your mind? I I can't. I won't. It doesn't work. But Jesus is challenging us. He wants a righteousness that goes beyond the outward appearance of doing the right thing. And he wants a righteousness that comes from within us. These same Pharisees who said, they're whitewashed tombs. On the outside, man, the grass is cut and the flowers are planted and the tombstone is cleaned and prepared. But inside, it's empty and full of death. And these were the people that the world applauded. The the Pharisees, this wasn't a negative connotation. They were the ones that were lifted up as the spiritual leaders in the community. And he said, Their hands are righteous. Their smiles are righteous. Their words are righteous. Their hearts are dead. He said, unless we surpass that, we're going to think he lost his ever-loving mind. You see, the kingdom heart is more concerned about being righteous than it is about being right. And this is the challenge for all of us. That's why I still believe, maybe it's just me and I'm transposing this on all of us, but I think this is why this text is going to make a lot of you, I I don't know. Listen to Romans 12. The apostle Paul would echo the words of Jesus. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Jesus' right relationship with God is to show love for enemies instead of their destruction. To give unconditional forgiveness rather than retaliation to be ready to suffer rather than use force, to be a peacemaker rather than a revenge taker, to be righteous, which means to be right with God and right with you, 
A righteous person has a right relationship with their father and a right relationship with their neighbor. This is what Jesus taught us. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. To be righteous means one is an easy relationship. The other one is incredibly complicated, right? To love someone who's harmed us. We're not talking about the guy joking, put away, who cuts us off in traffic because who knows why they have to go down the road why they have to buzz by us and cut us off. Maybe they're headed to a hospital. I always have to give people the benefit of the doubt or otherwise I will judge the fire out of them. We're not talking about just being inconvenienced. Some of you in this room have been taken advantage of. Business partners who lied to you and stole from you. People who promised you something and took advantage of you and left you empty and betrayed. And that is talking about a paper cut. I'm talking about an open heart wound. And Jesus said, I got a word for you. You have the right to get even, but getting even doesn't work. It doesn't, it doesn't heal. It doesn't allow life. In my kingdom, I want you to go beyond being right to being righteous. And yet, the challenge will come down to all of us is whether or not we trust Jesus enough that he knows what he's talking about. You see, turning the other cheek is a strategic choice. It's a choice to say no to myself and trust that God can work in something. See, I love the passage where it says, well, just leave the vengeance to God. Then we're like, oh, he's going to smoke them. And I won't harm him if God will get them deeper. And he said, no, no, you don't understand. Our God's loving kindness lasts forever. His mercy and his patience are ever present. You see, the valuing of each individual is the heart of a kingdom person. And when I'm trying to get revenge, I'm not choosing to will the good of my enemy. I'm trying to will my good. Jesus made it clear that the way of the cross, and I need you to follow with me for a moment. If you've tuned out, jump back in. The way of the cross is to suffer unjustly for the benefit of others. Why would we expect that sometimes we won't have to suffer unjustly for the benefit of others to follow the cross? Because what Jesus went through was unjust, and what he should have done is brought down his wrath and his revenge. I love when Peter cuts off Malchus's ear. And Jesus looks at him and says to him these words, there are 10,000 angels on the edge of heaven who will come down here in a heartbeat and bring justice. And I told him, don't. My paraphrase. And then he glues the guy's ear back on and goes and dies. When revenge was justified, Jesus said, no, there will be no justification of you if I take revenge. So he chose to love. He chose to serve. He actually sought the redemption of the offenders. So is it unjust that we turn the other cheek, that we give more than we're asked to, that we allow people to disadvantage us for the opportunity we get to present the gospel to them? Absolutely, because if Jesus hadn't, we wouldn't have any life, any hope, any joy. Proverbs twenty four twenty nine. Do not say I shall do to him as he has done to me and I will render to this man according to his work. Proverbs says that's not wise. Proverbs twenty twenty two. Do not say I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will save you. Even, even when we're undergoing this. You see, Jesus is not telling us to be dishragged. The illustrations he gave isn't walk around looking for evil people to abuse you as some form of standard. No, he said opportunities will come when there will be people who don't love you and you respond with love and watch the gospel do a work it can't do any other way. Are you kidding me? Have you lost your mind? It takes faith. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, 
Finally, all of you, oh, I need to pause. Who wrote this? Peter. Whacked the dude's ear, went into a Samaritan town, asked for free lunch. They told him no. He, James, and John came back to Jesus saying, can we firebomb that place? This guy writes these words. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Are you kidding me? Why in the world would anybody do that? It's punishment? To earn their way to heaven? No. How does this response bring about righteousness? God said, justice needs to be upheld, not revenge. Jesus said, Instead of revenge, choose love. Choose mercy. Choose to will the good of your enemy over their destruction. How does this response bring about righteousness? Our text reveals there's a better way than retaliation. There's a higher ground on which we as believers walk. It's a response of compassion. It's a response of saying no to myself to love another. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and send rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And this is when we come to a screeching halt. Verse 48, be perfect. I can't. Because for me, perfection means that you have to be unblemished. There can be no scars, no mistakes. I'm past that point. I am, my loser column is double filled. My winner column has one or two small victories. There's no way I can be perfect. If you interpret that statement as perfection being absolute moral perfection... You've misunderstood the Greek word. It's a bad translation to even use perfect. It means spiritually mature. It's a Greek word that means that you are becoming what God called you to become. And there are going to be moments where I get busted in the mouth. and My first response to someone I love is to strike back. But I can overcome that because when I live with the new kingdom heart, I may have lost my mind, but I've gained my heart. And the center of my being, the administrative center of who I am, is now taking over from my natural responses. In 1 John chapter 2, the Apostle John would write these words. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Are you kidding me? No, I'm not. In fact, let's talk about the word abides. What does the word abide mean? Let me give you a very deep theological definition for the word abide. Hang out with. That makes sense to me. John says that when, and he would know, he and Peter would know this firsthand. If you hang out with Jesus and you place yourself in a Jesus world and you begin to pay attention to what he says and you do what he says and you take the experiences he offers you and you open yourself to those experiences. If you abide in Jesus, John 15... If you abide in Jesus, he will come to life in you. And don't be shocked when you don't start looking like him. So 
I met this girl 34 years ago. I've, a, I've hung out with her. I've abided with her for 34 years. I'm a better person for hanging out with Heather than I ever was without. The, the me that she met was all about what advantages I could gain, what was good for me and what I liked and let everybody else do their own thing. Then I started abiding with this girl and hanging out with her and I saw the way she treated others and I saw her generosity and I saw her kindness and I thought how she was looking out for people and I'm like, she's weird. And then by abiding with her, I thought, no, that's why people like her. And all of a sudden by abiding with her, I left my place over here of selfishness and I started to become more like her and I find myself doing things that she would have done because I saw by witness what she was doing. And I thought, it's not just people like me now, it's the right way to live your life. John says, when you abide with Jesus, it may appear you've lost your mind. It's because you've gained a heart. And by abiding in Christ, you'll begin to do some of the sacrificial things that don't make any sense, like turning your cheek when someone's hurting you or letting them have more than they think you'll give or responding to them with kindness, love, and mercy rather than hatred and revenge. It's when we abide in Jesus that the power to be like Jesus is made available to us. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Graft into me. Allow that strength to be ours. It's difficult to even consider actually doing what Jesus is commanding. The first thing we have to do is put aside our rights to do the right thing. Is this to be taken literally? Yeah. It's found throughout the Bible. It's proven to work. Joseph forgave his brothers who traded him into slavery while he was a free man. David spared the life of King Saul on two different occasions when he could have killed him and ended his nightmare. He instead honored him. Elisha fed the army of the Arameans in 2 Kings chapter 6. Stephen, while being stoned, said these famous words, Father, forgive them for they don't really understand what they're doing. I hear Jesus say that on the cross. Help me with it. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, but they did. But he didn't, he wasn't looking at revenge. He willed the good of his enemies and died on the cross to bring it about. For us to will the good of anyone may cost us more than we ever imagined. You see, we do not proclaim the power of the kingdom of heaven in our anger, Sermon on the Mount. We do not proclaim the power of the kingdom of heaven in our unchecked, uncontrolled passions. We do not proclaim the power of the kingdom of heaven in our refusal to honor our covenants. We do not proclaim the power of the kingdom of heaven in our lying and manipulating people with deception. And we do not proclaim the power of the kingdom of heaven by besting people in revenge. We proclaim the power of the kingdom of heaven by love. Simple choosing to love. God's way has always been grace and mercy and love. Have you lost your mind? Nope. Just regaining my heart. Now, at this point in time, I'm supposed to have some really pithy and cute and witty way to give you something to do, and I don't have a clue. I don't. I just know what God's been challenging me all summer with, and that is that doing it my way has never worked. And I'm easily about making sure that if you mistreat me, you feel the wrath that you deserve. And God is telling me, no. He's told me several times this summer, stop talking and telling other people about what someone did to you. A, they don't care, and B, they don't need to know. You're demeaning someone who's not even around you, someone who can't defend themselves or explain what condition they were in when they did this to you. 
he's really laid that on my heart. For, for many of you in the room, I can't tell you what you're supposed to do, but I believe the Holy Spirit will if you listen. Who are you supposed to respond to with love that you've been responding to with justice? There's nothing wrong with justice unless you're trying to hurt them. The Old Testament said, God's about justice, not revenge. Jesus said, I'm about love, not revenge. And so we get to choose today. One of the toughest teachings I'll teach from this stage, you have a right to get even. You also have the right way not to. By love and mercy and forgiveness. What we love to do this morning is this. I can't tell you what you're supposed to do. I can only do what I know I'm supposed to do. I'd like you to just sit for the next 30 seconds. If you believe there's a God and you believe that that God's active, ask him a simple question. Where am I seeking revenge and how can I show love? And if you pay attention, don't be surprised if you hear or feel something. And then we get to choose whether or not we respond. So let's ask the question and sit and wait for the answer. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.